I'm Ben Forrid. I'm Polly Gill. And I'm Alyssa Mendel. And this is Chordscast. Created by the team at the Coordination of Rare Diseases at Sanford, or CORDS for short, which is a rare disease registry working to tie together patients and researchers, no matter their condition and no matter where they are in the world. In these episodes, you'll hear interviews with scientists, physicians, rare disease patients, and advocates, along with updates on our registry and ways that you can get involved. Let's get started. And welcome to another episode of the Chords Cast. I'm Alyssa Mendel, and today I have joining with me Polly Gill from the Chords team and Carol Roberts from the PBCers organization. Carol's gonna walk us through and share a little bit more about PBC with us today. Carol, could you introduce yourself and just tell the audience a little bit about who you are and your connection to the rare disease community? Sure, Alyssa, I'd be happy to. I am actually a rare disease patient. I was diagnosed with um, primary biliary cholangitis um, over 20 years ago. Primary biliary cholangitis is a chronic liver disease that slowly destroys your interhepatic bile ducts. And inflammation that it causes in your liver over a period of years can cause scarring and may eventually lead to cirrhosis of the liver. There isn't a actual known cause of PVC. It is not alcohol or drug related and it's not contagious as many people believe about all liver diseases. Um, It's an autoimmune disease in the current thinking. They believe that you may be genetically predisposed to um, come down with PVC and then something triggers it into action, either an environmental or a viral trigger which the search is still on to find that cause. This disease tends to affect women uh, 10 times more than men and is usually diagnosed in patients between the age of 35 to 60 years old. Wow, thanks for sharing a little bit of that. Uh, How are people diagnosed? Like if they went in to see their physician, what type of testing would they need to figure out this is what they have? Well, years ago, back when I was first diagnosed, people were being discovered in the later stages of the disease because it waited until they started to have some really outward physical signs of um, a liver disease, which would be jaundice, mm-hmm. um, a fluid buildup in the um, belly, referred to as ascites. Now you're finding more and more people because of testing for various other things, especially one of them being life insurance, that they will test, uh, do a liver panel on you, and it will show some of your liver enzymes are elevated. And then if you happen to be connected with a doctor who thinks that should be looked at further, then they will get into testing a little further to find out why those are elevated. There are many reasons why. Um, very prevalent now is uh, fatty liver disease, and that can have them raise 
um, then you get into the more rare possibilities of the fact of it being autoimmune hepatitis or primary biliary cholangitis. And there is a specific test that they can do. Um, it's they're testing the AMA M2, and that combined with a elevated alkaphosphatase level will um, pretty much conclude that you have PVC. Wow, that's interesting. So, am I safe to say that in order to get the liver panels or other testing done, people typically show outward symptoms? The usual symptom that would bring most women, as we know, women do not like to go to the doctors. We tend to visit our gynecologists when required, and other than that, <laughs> we say, oh, we'll just take care of it. Um, but the, the main symptoms that people would notice first that may lead them to the doctors is an intense itching. And it's not an itching mm -hmm. that is like you got bit by a bug and you scratch it and it goes away. This itching is under the skin. It's almost more of a burning sensation mm. and it doesn't go away. As scratching, it doesn't help. As a matter of fact, it usually aggravates it. Um, another symptom is major fatigue. Um, most PVC patients will have one or both of those symptoms that may be what led them to the doctors in the first place. That's really interesting. Thanks for giving a quick overview of some of those symptoms. And I'm, this is Polly talking right now. And um, so when did you decide to um, become an advocate for PBC? Well, Polly, I'm not sure I ever really made a conscious decision. <laughs> <laughs> I joined the organization after my diagnosis um, as a patient. I wanted to learn more about my disease and the treatments that were available. Um, because of them, I came to realize that as a rare disease group, um, patients and their families would need to be the ones to raise awareness about rare disease and to raise money for research. And that compelled me to step forward. I am not one to sit back and say, oh, poor me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm one to say, okay, how can we fix this and what can I do to help? Um, our treatment options were limited at that time, and I was losing the friends that I had made in this organization to the disease. Well, that's nice that they can come to you if they have any questions or concerns about anything. So that's great that you have this organization. It gives people hope and to find a, hopefully find a treatment or a cure in the future then, too. Yes, it is. It's um, the, reason that the, the reason that we exist is, is so that people do have that. Um, we don't like to sugarcoat anything. Um, many patients do well on the current treatments and go on to live an absolutely normal lifespan. Um, there are others who aren't able to do that and they have a really tough journey with this disease. It can be simpler for those that aren't affected by as many other autoimmune diseases because they tend to travel in sets. If you have one autoimmune, you tend to come down with at least one or two friends that join in. Um, I think that's why I've been fortunate to have done as well as I am to stay active because I haven't had any other autoimmune diseases or other diseases um, affect me so that I don't have quite as debilitating um, 
symptoms as others would do. And I figure as long as my health allows it, I will be the voice and step forward and be the action as long as I can. Can you tell us um, about the PBCers organization a little bit? Well, the PBCers organization was founded by Lenny Moore after she was diagnosed with PBC. And she is probably one of my biggest inspirations Mm -hmm. in working with the group. Um, She was told she had PBC and she was going to need a transplant within two years or die. Um, She got on the internet and searched and the information that she found was depressing and outdated. It told her there was no cause, there was no cure. You'd need a liver transplant or you would no longer be with us. Um, So reaching out online, she posted a message to a transplant group board to get more information on that aspect of it. And she found three people who had had a PBC diagnosis. That group of three grew into the organization today, which has over 5,000 members worldwide. The um, original mission was to offer education and support to primary biliary cholangitis patients, family members, and friends, and to raise funds to help search the causes and cure for PBC, and that remains our core mission today. Actually, the word PBCers looks like a cute way to say people who have PBC, but it stands for primary biliary cholangitis education, research, and support. And so that was how the name came about. Um, We have, because of uh, circumstances, gotten a little more into the advocate role, not as much the political advocacy as um, advocating for our patients to get, know what the treatment should be and to demand that they receive the treatment that is the best for this disease. Um, And just to educate people and raise awareness and continue to raise funds for research so that we can reach our ultimate goal, which is to find the cause and cure for this disease. Carol, this is Alyssa again, and I heard you mention how Linny, when she was diagnosed, she went straight to the internet, and she was looking for answers. What advice do you give patients who have received a diagnosis of PBC? Well, the first thing I usually tell a newly diagnosed patient is to stop and breathe, (laughs) and then reassure them that they're not alone, that there are many of us out there that are willing to share our experiences. We don't share medical advice. We only share our experiences and how different things have helped us and then encourage them to have discussions with their doctors about those things. Many times doctors that are diagnosing them have never treated a patient with PBC before. So they give them a quick explanation or a pamphlet and the patient goes online to search. Of course, as we all know, all that once it's on the internet, it's always on the internet. So all that outdated information from when Linny was diagnosed in 1995 is still out there. And if the patient doesn't know to look at reputable sites or the dates on the information they're reading, it can really still throw someone into a panic. So we try to recommend that they stick with reputable sites and not just Google PBC can come up with all sorts of unusual 
studies and treatments that have already been proven not to be effective. But as I said, if it's on the internet, it's still on the internet. So also we have many in the general population and even many of the people that are diagnosed with PVC that are mistakenly believe that all liver diseases are caused by alcohol and drugs. So they don't even want to share their diagnosis with their friends and family members because they don't want to be judged. Mm. And we offer them safe places where they can privately share their fears and ask questions. We always say there are no stupid questions. We've all asked the same ones. And it seems to be a cycle in our social media sites that, you know, at least something goes gets asked at least every three months because another new person has joined and has the same question. We do have places where they can go back and look at them, but when you're in a panic state of a new diagnosis, you're not really functioning with that organizational skill at mind to say, well, I'm going to look at this list and read this. They just want to hear it from somebody that there's a possibility they can be okay. We share the current treatment guidelines for them, and then they can have an education, educated discussion with their doctors about their treatments. Can you kind of further discuss the second FDA-approved treatment and other ones currently being looked at? And why um, is the CORDS registry, why is that helping? Well, the original uh, treatment um, for PBC, Verso 250, was approved just prior to my diagnosis. And so we were all on the brand name drug at that point. Um, but it was approved under orphan drug status. So since that expired, we've been receiving generic forms of Versadyl. Um, it wasn't a cure. It was only able to slow the progression of the destruction of our bile ducts. It works on the theory that it's a less caustic bile acid than the ones that your body normally is producing. So if you put in the less caustic, your body will stop producing as much of the caustic bile. And then when the ducts are damaged and it starts to back up into the liver, it will not cause quite as much damage. Uh, many people didn't respond to this sufficiently and still went on to require a liver transplant. And of course, not everyone who needs a liver transplant is able to get one, either because of the lack of donated organs or poor health. In 2015, the FDA approved Ocalava as a second-line therapy for PVC patients. It's helped a lot of people improve their um, liver enzyme tests and seems to be slowing the progression. Um, but again, like Urso, not everyone responds or tolerates the treatment. So we really need more options uh, in order to get a new program a new treatment approved, there's testing that needs to be done, which means clinical trials. In rare disease, the pool of people willing and able to participate is limited. And then once you've participated in one clinical trial for PBC, the parameters of the next trial may exclude you from being in the second trial for a certain period of time or sometimes forever, depending on what the company sets up as the parameters. Um, so this, again, takes this small pool of people and makes it even smaller. For those who don't know, a registry stores information with people with a specific disease, a syndrome, or a group of diseases. And when you enroll in the registry, you create your personal health record, 
which is combined with other patients, to help create this registry. Researchers who are ready to start studies or clinical trials can use this background information on patients to help identify who might be able to participate or look for similarities that could lead into studies. Um, they can include blood and imaging, and mostly it's a patient's natural history along with other medical conditions and symptoms. So having a registry allows patients who are unable to participate in clinical trials, whether because of health or distance enable and not being able to travel to the clinical trial sites, it allows everyone to be able to participate without having any risk factors. Your health history is all that needs to be in there and sharing that isn't going to cause any damage to you and it may be an immense help in moving forward our research. So that was why we came to the conclusion after doing several um, surveys within the organization that we needed to move into a registry because the surveys were great information and our researchers found them helpful, but they weren't able to compare one survey to the other because it wasn't a continuous information about one person's health. It didn't track a person through it. So, and we also felt that um, we chose to work with boards because the researchers can access their registry information at no cost. This was very important to us and was actually the top two items on our list of making a decision about the registry because if you don't have a lot of funds, you can't access something that's gonna take all your funds. You want to try something out in a small study, then this is the way to go. You have information there, you can look at it. And I believe that from small ideas, larger ones grow. Thanks for that recap, Carol. This is Alyssa again. And for those of you listening, if you're interested in learning more about the registry that Carol is referring to, the CORDS registry, you can go to stanfordresearch.org and you can type in rare disease registry and it'll bring you right to our website. You're able to then enroll if you do have PBC and you are able to then complete the questionnaire that CORDS and the PBCers have designed. And I just have to say, Carol, it has been such a pleasure working with you and the PBCers. The questionnaire that you developed has been just phenomenal, and I really think it's going to help advance research, like you mentioned. But tell me, why why do patients and their families need to advocate for PBC research? Well, there are so many health issues in today's world, and most of us, until we're actually impacted by a diagnosis personally or in our family, we've never heard of a lot of these diseases, and especially if it's a rare disease. Um, funds for research are limited. Most research dollars are put into areas that are going to impact the most people. And in rare disease space, the patients and their families need to do what they can to raise awareness and research dollars because it's a reality that without them, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would. So just to wrap things up here, I feel like you've given the audience a good grasp on what PBC is, how they can help advance research and ways to participate in the registry. Is there any other information that you want to share with those listening today? Well, we do have our um, biannual um, patient education conference coming up in 2020. Um we bring together patients with top PBC experts, researchers, and we update them on the latest treatments and information about PBC. 
They get to ask questions directly to these experts. The conference allows them also to meet face-to-face with others and that they've connected with online. And for many, it's the first person sharing their disease that they've actually met and can reach out and touch. Um, This year, we're hosting the conference in October on the 15th through the 17th in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. We're hoping this location will help us bring in people from the eastern side of the country where we haven't had a conference in a while. And it is allowing us to work very closely with Duke University and their hospital staff um, who have a lot of knowledge on PVC. You can find the details on the conference on our conference website page by going to www.pbcers.org. And you'll also find a lot of other valuable information about PBC on that site. Carol, I know you had mentioned that you wanted to discuss some of the data that was collected through the CORS registry at that conference. So again, for those of you listening, if you have a diagnosis of PBC or know somebody that has a diagnosis of PBC, make sure you go and enroll in the CORS registry to complete that questionnaire and to help you know, figure out some trends and what's going on to, with PBC. Again, that's at sanfordresearch.org. You can search for the Rare Disease Registry. Carol, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to share with us about PVC, and I really look forward to continuing to work with you and your organization. We look forward to filling our registry up as quickly as we can and having people, researchers start accessing it to um, promote further studies into the cause and cure and other treatments for PVC. It was a item that was on um, my list of things I needed to accomplish in my life. And I was able to check that off this year (laughs) by getting the registry, actually last year, by getting the registry launched uh, last November. So um, it's, we're very proud to have brought that out. And we're, um, we plan actually at the conference to um, set up a site where if there are people attending the conference who haven't registered because they didn't understand it or had technical difficulties, um, we hope to set up a, a computer and actually start getting people to enroll right there while they're sitting there. That's fantastic. I'm glad we were able to help you check off that item on your bucket list. So again, to everyone out there listening, thank you again for tuning in to another episode of Cordscast. Thanks so much for listening. The theme music for Cordscast is borrowed with permission from Scott Holmes's song, So Happy. To learn more about Sanford Research and our registry, Chords, visit us at sanfordresearch.org slash chords. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions, comments, stories, or feedback to chords at sanfordhealth.org. Find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Sanford Chords. The content of Chordscast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. We'll see you next time on Chordscast. <laughs>